Well, hello, Christ Chapel. Great to be able to worship with you today. Hello to all of you who are worshiping either one of our campuses or on our online campus. So glad that you've chosen to join with us. Maybe you've even woken up early today. God bless you. Uh, God will bless you tremendously for it, I think. I'm just kidding. I can't make any promises. But so glad you've chosen to join with us for worship. Speaking of worship, last week I talked about some of the changes that were, uh, would potentially happen in the near future regarding capacity and all the COVID protocols that we've been going through. I just wanted to give you a, a quick update. I don't have any great announcement or anything like that. So lower expectations here. But I wanted to go ahead and let you know that phase one of us kind of getting back to things the way that maybe they used to be somewhat normal, uh, phase one is all about worship and children's. That is our priority is we want you to be able to worship. And one of, those thing, one of those things that that's going to entail is that, as I said last week, we are committed to having places where you are able to worship at each of our campuses that provide a little bit more space if you feel like that's more comfortable for you, if you feel that that's necessary. So at all of our physical venues, you're going to begin to see some very small and tiny tweaks to capacity and to uh, the places. You, you'll notice some different things going on or places is where you can go and sit if you want some more space or if you want to leave your mask on. All of those things uh, will have places for you to be able to worship uh, based on what you feel comfortable. So I just wanted to let you know that it's going to be slow, folks. Uh, we want to be calculated. We want to be careful. We want to be considerate uh, of others. Honestly, this is just me speaking. To throw the doors wide open right now would, would not be sensitive to those folks that have lost loved ones. Uh, just this past year, many of whom are in our congregation. So we want to be very considerate of not only those folks that have lost someone, but of, of our community. So we're going to do this very slowly. We've got a big thing coming up here, spring break, which some of you might be on. We need to see what happens after that. So there are a lot of things going on. You'll see those slow tweaks. But as I said, phase one priority is worship. And then the second is children's. And I want to talk specifically about children's very quickly because folks, those folks that have small children have been worshiping at home. And let me tell you, they haven't been worshiping at home because they have small children at home. When Jen and I and the boys, when it was specifically right when we opened uh, or shut down when COVID times happened and we started just worshiping online only, uh, we recorded those services on Fridays. So we did the whole service on Friday, which meant for the very first time, I was able to worship with my entire family on Sunday morning and we didn't worship. I mean, I'm invested, I, I'm up there. And I can't even pay attention because of my boys running around. But folks, we need to begin, we need to get back to raising up the next generation for Jesus. It is imperative, not only for those small children, but for the parents who are discipling those small children all throughout the week. We've got to get them back in. But what that means is we need folks who can volunteer in children's ministry to get in the game. Right now, we need about 100 volunteers that, uh, across all of our campuses to be able to open up children's ministry uh, wide open, where anyone who wants to bring a child can. We need 100 people. Now here, uh, let me say this. Here's what we're not gonna do. 
we're not going to lower the bar on what it takes to require the requirements to serve in our children's ministry. We have very strict requirements for anyone who interacts with our children. And we're not gonna lower the bar so that we can get more people in quicker to therefore then open up children's ministry. We have a, you have to be at Christ Chapel at least six months. You have to go through background checks. You have to go through reference checks. You have to go through personal interviews. You have to do, I mean, there are a lot of fences that are up and I will not apologize for any of those. I'm glad that we have those, but here's what that means. Some of you are screened, and you know what I mean by that, ministry safe screened, you meet all of those requirements and you're not serving. We need those of you who are screened to come back and to help serve. And maybe you don't have children and you're screened. Maybe you have children, but they're out of the house and you're screened. Would you get in the game for the sake of that next generation? and to come in and serve so that those parents of those young children can come to worship and so those children can learn about Jesus at a young age because you all know statistically, that's when most people come to know Christ is before the age of 14. So this is imperative that you get in the game and that might mean that you sacrifice them, that you worship one hour and you serve in children's the next. But those of you who've met those requirements, we need your help. So if you're interested in that and you feel God's prompting, please just text CCBC Kids to 94090. They're gonna send you a little bit of information. This is not signing in blood in any way. This is gonna give you some options and, and to begin the conversation and dialogue. We have uh, places to serve inside the classroom. We have places to serve outside of the classroom. But we need your help to prioritize phase one, which is getting folks back to worship, okay? All right, last weekend was kind of a special weekend uh, for me and Jen. We actually celebrated our 13th wedding anniversary, so we were excited about that, so we got to celebrate, but I also got to officiate a wedding for one of our staff members. So it was kind of this wedding weekend of remembrance uh, for me. Now, the miracle for me and Jen is not just that we made it through 13 years of marriage, it's that we this weekend put together an Ikea dresser together, <laughs> and we're still married. I mean, you want to test the waters? Try to put together one of those things. But last weekend was great. We got to celebrate. We went out to dinner on Friday night to celebrate our anniversary. But then on Saturday night, I had the wedding. It was actually right here. And what was interesting was I was going through the ceremony and I came to the vows, which many of you know what vows are. Vows are the promises that the spouses, soon-to-be spouses, make to each other. And you can write anything you want. I tell all the couples, I mean, if you want to write your own, you can, you can promise one another the moon. You can promise to bring them breakfast in bed every day. You can promise to, to cry with them when they cry. I mean, you can promise them whatever. doesn't matter. And many couples choose just kind of the traditional vows, which is what Jen and I had, and that's what this couple uh, had chosen also. And so I'm reading through the vows, and I'm reminded of the vows that I made. And so I'm like, you know, re repeat after me, you know, I take you to be my wedded husband, to be my wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, you know, to love and to cherish in sickness and health, for richer, for poorer, all, all those things. And what I realized was as I'm reading these to this sweet couple, sweet couple, wonderful couple, wonderful families, but they have no idea what's coming. <laughs> we all know that. 
You see, we, we know that these are great promises that they're making each other and very sincere and very appropriate. We should make those promises to our soon-to-be spouses, no doubt. I did the same thing. But what I know is those promises are gonna be tested. There will be times of sickness and health. There will be times that they're experiencing great financial blessing and times when they're financially challenged. There will be times when they don't want to cherish one another, when they want to go against each other and fight one another. I mean, those promises, though appropriate, will be tested. But we all know that that's the difference between a promise just that is made. It's a big difference between a promise that's made and a promise that's kept. That's a huge deal. And we know that, and that's why we know that the promises that we make are gonna be tested. And some of us have felt regret for even promises that we've made to God that we've not kept. I mean, how many of you have made a promise to God where you have said, God, if you just get me out of this jam, I promise that I will never miss another Sunday, that I will read my Bible every day. You know, if you just let this legal trouble pass, if you just let her come back to me, then I will do this. It's easy to make that promise. I mean, they're great prayers of desperation. When we're in desperate times, it calls for desperate measures. We'll pray the moon and promise God the moon. But where the rubber meets the road is after we say amen. After you make that promise, after you pray and after you say amen, we, we've got to live those things out. And we realize that when, especially when we start praying the same prayers. When you start saying, God, I promise I'll never miss a Sunday. And then you miss a Sunday and you're like, oh, and then you find yourself in another tight jam and you go, I promise I'll never miss another Sunday. And our actions don't change. We go back and we pray the same prayers. You see, if you want your prayers to change, maybe the follow through has to change a little bit. There's an old story of a, a guy who moved into a new town, got involved in a church, and actually wanted to get super involved, put down roots there, so he started attending the prayer meeting. There was a prayer meeting once a week, midweek. And he would go to the prayer meeting, and the first week he showed up, and he noticed that this one guy prayed this very profound prayer, and he stood up in front of everybody and said, God, please clean out the cobwebs in my life. And he was like, you know, man, how transparent, how, how honest, how, how vulnerable that he would stand up and you know, share that he's kind of struggling. And then he went back the next week and he noticed that the same guy stood up and said, God, please clean out the cobwebs in my life. He's like, gosh, this guy must really be struggling, you know, gosh, we really should, should help out. And he's, he says, God, you know, if this guy, you know, stands up the next week and says the same thing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get, get buddy up with him, take him to breakfast. Guy stands up the third week, God, clean out the cobwebs in my life. <laughs> the guy comes to a realization, stands up right after that guy and goes, God, would you kill the spider in Bob's life? See, we, we can pray, God, do this for me. God, do this for me. God, do this. We just need to kill a spider. Sometimes there's some action and some follow through that will actually change the prayers after we say amen. That we don't need to keep praying the same thing. 
God's saying, I already gave you the answer. Here's what you need to do. <laughs> just, just, just obey my word. Go back and do this. And it'll change the prayers. It'll put you in a totally different perspective. And that's what we're going to talk about today is what do we do after we say amen? So if you will, open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. We're going to obviously continue our series. We're coming to, to the end of our series in Nehemiah that we've called Rebuilding. And God's been doing some wonderful things in and amongst our congregation of the different ways that he's rebuilding our lives when we've seen like everything it was stripped to the studs of this past year. And I wanna remind you, if you, if you, you will not forget this because I've repeated it every time. Remember, there are two main sections of Nehemiah. The first part of Nehemiah is building a wall. The second part is about building the people building God's people. So we build up the wall so that we can protect God's people so that they can therefore be built up to worship God. And the, the temple is at the very center of the city. And we've talked about that. You can, build, you can try to build whatever you want, rebuild whatever you want. But if God isn't at the center of it, then it's in vain. And so we've been going through this series talking about rebuilding, but with God at the center of it. And remember, the walls were torn down for 140 years before Nehemiah shows up on the scene. 140 years. Now, I want you to think, if you're one of those people that is living in Jerusalem when the walls are torn down for those 140 years, do you think you would have prayed a prayer like this? God, if you will just rebuild the walls then we will always worship you. God, if you will just give us safety from our enemies, then we will never turn our backs on you. God, if you will just, and finally God does, and he brings Nehemiah in to rebuild the walls, to answer the prayers of the people because God hears the cries of his people and he answers the cries of his people. We see it all throughout scripture. In fact, we saw it in last week's prayer in Nehemiah chapter nine. And this prayer of desperation is met and he brings Nehemiah in and a miraculous work. The walls that were torn down for 140 years are built up in 52 days. Amazing, amidst opposition people that were trying to oppose the work. So in 52 days, the walls are built back up. Now it's time to rebuild the people. And remember, they bring out the book of the law. Ezra reads from the book of the law for hours, hours. And then the people begin to confess their sins. And we talked about that last week. They didn't just confess who God is, how great he is, how forgiving, how kind, how merciful, how slow to anger and abounding in love. But they also therefore confessed they're not like that. And praise God, he is who he is, unchangeable, immutable, because they stray and they wonder. And every time they strayed and wondered, they would cry out to God and God would rescue them. God would call them back. He would bring them back, deliver them, save them from the hand of their enemies. So we talked about those different ways to come back to God in Nehemiah chapter 9. Confession of who God is and who we are. We repent, we turn the other way, change our minds. And then we make those commitments. And at the very end of Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38, Nehemiah, uh, it says, because of all this, that's what we talked about, because of all the things where God is faithful, and even when we turned away, he came and rescued us, time and time and time again, I gave you that chart last week, remember? Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. 
And they all signed this commitment. That's why you got some heart work or some homework to do last week. And I told you in Nehemiah chapter 10, we're going to look at those different commitments that they made. See, there's this great prayer that they have. God, you are so faithful. God, you are so good. And we commit, we sign on the dotted line, we are going to follow you. Amen. Now, what does that mean? That's what's in Nehemiah chapter 10. So I want to walk through what those commitments were that they made. Just like vows in a wedding. God, I promise you I will do this. But then they have to live it out after they say amen. And I want to tell you what that means for us today. So the first commitment that they make is they promise to submit to the word of God. They had strayed from the word of God, which is why whenever Ezra reads it, and they read it for hours upon hours, that they begin to weep. They had neglected, they had forgotten it. They didn't remember what it says. And so now they say that they promise that they will submit to the word of God. And what I love, this is before we get to it, if you just picked up Nehemiah chapter 10 and you were getting ready and you were trying to be prepared for this sermon and you picked it up and you read it, you probably petered out by about you know, verse 23 because there's a list of just 84 names. 84 names. And oftentimes we don't take time to read the names. And I wanna just point out two things about that is I want my name to be recorded. Not, not, in the, not, not in history, but those that know God are recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. They sign on the dotted line. Like, the, praise God for those people that made such a statement that their names are remembered. Like, I, 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 want, I want God to remember me for following him, and that's what these people did. They made such a statement that they're in Scripture. That's pretty, pretty profound, pretty cool. But the other thing that I want you to notice is Nehemiah is the very first name. He's the, fir- he's the first name that's listed. And here's, here's my principle for this. It's that leaders lead. Very profound. Leaders lead. And maybe you are the leader of your household Maybe you're the leader of your friend group. Maybe you're the leader of your, uh, at your work. Maybe you're the leader, uh, uh, you're a coach. You're, you're some sort of leader in a, a community organization. Then lead for God's sake. And what I mean by that is, as a leader, you need to step up and to define what you're going to be about and then lead by example. That's what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah defines, this is who we're going to be. We are God's people. His temple needs to be protected, and we need to worship him. And so here's what we're going to do, and I'm going to help. Nehemiah built just as much of the wall as any other individual in there. And if you are the leader of your household or any of those other kind of groups, I said, for God's sake, lead. Define biblically who you're going to be and say, this is what we're gonna be about, and then lead by example. And he does that by being the first to sign. And what he's signing here is that he promises to submit to the word of God. If you look at verses 28 and 29, he says, the rest of the people, after those 84 names, the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, uh, the singers, the the temple servants, and all who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land uh, to the law of their God, 
their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, we'll come back to that, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to do what? To walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord and our Lord and his rulers and his statutes. And so what do they promise? They promise that they are going to submit to the word of God. How much of the word of God? Okay, I just read it in verse 29. How much of the word of God? All of it. All of it. God, we're not going to pick and choose. God, we're not going to say, I really like the God of love, but I don't like the God that requires anything of me. I, I, I really want to do what I want to do. You know, Lord, give me the desires of my heart. Man, we love that verse. But I will submit to your will and I will go and love my wife as Christ loves the church. I mean, they, they say we will submit to all of it. They're not going to pick and choose. And who submitted to all of it? It says, everyone who had knowledge and understanding. If you have sat under the teaching of this pulpit for any amount of time over the past 40 years, you have as much knowledge and understanding as you need to trust the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation. You have enough to know how to take your next step with Jesus. You have knowledge and understanding. And folks, you will be held accountable for what you know and what you apply. What should be happening in our Christian lives is as our knowledge increases in the word of God, so should our obedience. And oftentimes that's not the case. Let our understanding increase, praise God but let our obedience match. And they say, everyone who has knowledge and understanding, we realize we need to submit to the word of God. And it says that they enter into this oath and curse. And I know that sounds really Harry Potter-ish, but what it means is that they realize that there are consequences, positive and negative, for obeying or disobeying God's word. And they are willing to incur the blessings or the cursings that come from obedience or disobedience. God, this is the promise we make. And if we don't fulfill it, we understand that you will discipline us. Just like you did our forefathers in Nehemiah chapter 9. But Lord, we also understand that you are good and you are kind. And if we walk in your ways, we have your favor, we have your protection, we have your provision, we have your blessing. And we, we understand that. I mean, it's just like any, anything you sign. When, when you sign your, your mortgage, you know that there are blessings and consequences. If you make your payment, you stay in your house. If you're unable to make your payments, you're not gonna be able to hold on to your house very long. There are blessings and curses for all the commitments that you sign on the dotted line. And that's what they realize as well. There, there are consequences for every action that we have. And if we're going to submit to the word of God, we know that if we obey, blessings. It doesn't mean that everything's going to, going to be you know, rainbows and unicorns. But it, but it does mean that you'll, you know that you'll walk in God's will. 
as you follow God's way. You know that nothing will pass through his hand that ever reaches you. And so you'll know it's his will. You know that he'll walk you through it. You'll know that he'll see you through it. I mean, great peace, great confidence when you know that you're walking in God's way. And that's what they say when they submit to the word of God. But they say amen. And here's what that means for us. If you say, Cody, I will submit to the word of God. After you say amen, then you have to make God's word your authority from which you derive your actions. At Christ Chapel, God's word is authoritative for our lives. This is where we go to understand what we do. This is where we derive our actions. And I was very careful in how I worded that because right now in our society, we do not always act, but instead we react. And because something catches on fire over here, we go, oh, we better react to that. Or somebody's gonna think less of us. Or, oh, we've gotta, we gotta do that because uh, that person is going to kick us out of their friend group. Or we're, we're going to, you know, our business is gonna fail over here. We, we, can't be a, we can't be a people that always react. We have to act. Well, how do we know how to act? Well, we don't get those, those opinions. We don't derive those from the world. We derive those from God's word. And I want us to be people that act. That, that provides us a firm foundation. I was thinking about this this morning. It reminded me of James chapter, five, uh, James chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, then let him ask God. And he will give generously without finding fault. And he said, but don't let that person doubt. Don't, don't, don't doubt that God will give you his wisdom that comes from his word. Why? Because if you begin to doubt, then you will be tossed to and fro like waves of the sea. And man, trying to, if we begin to doubt God's word, we are gonna be thrown with the shifting winds of culture back and forth over and over again, never knowing where we stand, never knowing where we are. You're gonna be reacting constantly. This has to be authoritative for your life. That means how you talk to people. That means how you think about people. That means how you conduct your family. That means how you conduct your business. That means how you, how you behave at the t-ball field. This is authoritative. This is where we derive our actions. And if we're gonna submit to the word, then we say, Lord, let this be our guide. The second commitment that they make is that they promise to separate for the witness of God. They promise that they will separate themselves for the sake of their witness as being God's set-apart people. And you've noticed this earlier in this chapter, and you noticed it earlier in chapter 9, where it says they, they, they've separated themselves from the foreigners. Now, all that means when it says foreigners are those who did not worship Yahweh. It doesn't mean that they didn't like people that weren't from the same country. It just meant that they didn't worship the same God. And there was no distinction between them. And now as God begins to build up his own people, they kind of start saying, you know, we're not them. Our, our life has a different trajectory. We worship a different God. We can't continue to be a part of them in everything that they're doing. And there were some very specific ways that they start, started drawing distinctions between we are Yahweh worshipers and they're not. 
You see that beginning in verse 30. They said, we will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Now, let me break this down for you. But basically, they're talking about social norms for them as believers in Yahweh. How do we interact with those surrounding us who do not worship Yahweh? Well, what they were doing was they were giving their sons and daughters over in marriage. Why would they do that? It was basically political alliance. It was, hey, man, if, if we're gonna buy goods from you and sell goods from you, if we, we don't want you to think that we're adversarial, that we're gonna rise up and we're gonna be against you, then let's, here, we'll give you our daughter, we'll give you our son. And so they began to intermarry with people who did not believe. And folks, that is why we talk about not, we will not marry folks that are not on the same page spiritually. It, it, it doesn't work. And if you're dating somebody that is, is not of the same faith as you are, I am not saying that, that we don't love them as Jesus loved us when we were not his. But I'm, folks, I'm telling you, if you go too far down that road, it's not going to end well. Missionary dating does not work. Don't do it. Just don't, don't even play with fire. You're going to get burned. And it's, it's not going to provide Christ the greatest reputation for that nonbeliever either. You gotta separate for the witness that it is to the world. And that's what they do. They start saying socially, we can't intermarry. Then they talk about how they interact with, with their business socially and economically. They say, hey, if somebody comes in on the Sabbath, which was a day set aside for God's people that they would rest, they would not work, which is a huge deal in an agrarian society that we're gonna be able to kick our feet up one day a week and God's still gonna provide for us. You watch, world. But they were coming in and they were going, oh gosh, we, we feel like we gotta buy something. We feel like we, we, we've gotta conduct business here again so that they don't become our enemies. We don't, we don't seem adversarial toward them. And so they start lessening, lowering the bar on being the people of God. We can't do that. They had to start providing some distinctions. So they said, we're not gonna intermarry anymore and we're not gonna do business on the Sabbath because that's a huge statement of faith to those around us that our God, he holds the heavens and the earth. He provides for his people even when we don't work for it. What a huge sign of grace about his people. And so they set themselves apart and it provides this really unique opportunity to talk about the challenges that we face uh, today because there's a huge challenge for us where we have to be in the world, but not of the world. And you've heard this said because Jesus said it in John chapter 17. In John chapter 17, he's, he's praying for us. He says, I have, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. And I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And Jesus draws this distinction. It's, and it's similar to what was going on here, where God leaves his people in the midst 
around people that don't know him. Why? For his witness. So they can be a witness to other people. But folks, if there's no difference between us, then what does that say about God? How does that reflect him? It doesn't reflect him at all. We've got to learn how to be in the world and not of it. And I've given you a chart on your sermon notes so that you can see the difference between what it means to be in but not of. Very different prepositions. Uh, To be in means that we're physically present, obviously. But we're not holistically entrenched. This isn't, all of our hope does not lie here in this world. This is not all there is to offer. We believe in life after death, life to come, that's gonna be better than what it is here. We are, when we're in the world, we live to please God. When we're of the world, we live to please ourselves because this is all the world has. There is nothing to come. When we're in the world, we stand on God's word. When we're of the world, then we're swayed by public opinion. We, we just go with, we, we go along to get along. We live by God's standards if we're in the world, but we live by acceptable standards if we're of the world. Whatever the world accepts, that's what we live by. If we're in the world, we go against the flow. If we're of the world, we go with the flow, which reminds me of Elf, random. In the world, worldview is challenged and disputed. Of the world, the worldview is applauded and supported. In the world, we have an eternal focus. Of the world, you have temporary motivations that come and go. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. Huge, huge difference. And when we're in the world, but not of the world, it's a witness left to God as we separate for him. So after we say amen, we have to show that God's way is different from the world's way. You have to show that God's way is different than the world's way. I don't know when this trend started, but it started decades ago. But the phrase that was used is lifestyle evangelism, okay? And this, this term, lifestyle evangelism, was all about, hey, I'm just gonna show by my life, which is great, that I follow Jesus, it's great. But eventually you gotta say something. Eventually you have to tell people about Jesus. But this idea of lifestyle evangelism that I'm just gonna show people that I'm different has bled over into other areas of our Christian life where we think if we just look like the world, then they're gonna think that we're really cool. And then they're gonna wanna be a part of us. And we think the more that we blur those lines, the more attractive we're gonna be to non-believers. And let me just tell you the truth. The more attractive we think we are, the more ineffective we really truly are. The world doesn't need something else that looks like the world. They need truth. They need hope. They need a firm foundation. They need something that looks different. The world is trying to reinvent itself with something that is brighter, shinier, better smelling, (laughs) something that can lure people to it. And we just say, man, we have hope. We have eternal life. Life ever. The truth is what we have. We've got to learn to separate ourselves in another way. Not by saying, we'll just look like them. Then they'll really like us. No, they won't. And so maybe in order to 
after you say amen, to show your way is different than the world's way. Maybe you need to start a not to-do list. We all have to-do lists, and you go, Cody, I'm, I'm going to church. I'm, I'm reading my Bible. I, I'm, I'm, you're doing these great, awesome things. Please continue to do those things. But maybe you need to start a list that says, but God, I won't do this. I won't talk like all those friends around me. I won't go to this place. I won't be enamored by these things. I won't be driven by these things. You need to start a I won't do list as much as you've been relying on your to do spiritual list. And then finally, the last commitment is I promise to support the work of God. I promise to support the work of God. And they go in and they say, Remember, the whole reason why the wall was torn down and the people were oppressed and tortured by their enemies was because they had not upheld worship in the temple. They had not upheld the worship of their God. That's why they were being disciplined. And they go back and they say, you know what? We have to prioritize worship. We've got to get back to that. In fact, in verse 39, as it summarizes all their things that they're gonna do for the temple, in verse 39 it says, we will not neglect the house of God. And this goes from everything from tithing, in a sense, which, by the way, tithing back then in Old Testament began for 20-year-olds. So if you're young and you say, man, I don't have enough money, been there. It began as 20-year-olds as a symbol of the ransom that God had paid for that individual. It was symbolic. If you have been saved by grace through faith, Giving is a gesture of worship back to God as a symbol that you have been ransomed and redeemed by the blood. You don't reach an age where you're ready to tithe. If you're a child of God, you give out of gratitude to him. It goes to giving and it even goes to serving. There's a great part in here I love where it talks about how they draw straws for who is going to go get the wood to burn in the temple for the sacrifices? I mean, that sounds like something I would do in my house. You know, who gets the short straw? You gotta go get the wood. But I love because it's like, man, we're all hands on deck. We're gonna get our hands dirty. I'm not just gonna give my money. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna help. I'm gonna step in and I'm gonna serve. See, you can make that commitment. God, I'm gonna prioritize you, your work, Great, after you say amen, then you have to prioritize and invest in what's eternal over what's temporal. And that might mean giving, or that might mean serving. It might mean rolling up your sleeves and getting your hands dirty in the work of God. We need your help. You have a spiritual gift and a unique makeup that nobody else has. If you're not serving, we're missing out. You're robbing us of that blessing. We need all hands on deck to, re our church is in the greatest rebuilding project that it's ever seen. We need all hands on deck. We need you. We need everybody rolling up their sleeves saying, I don't have to draw a straw to go get wood. I'm in. What do you need? Let's go take the hill. Let's go take our city for Jesus. Let's do that. See, we, we can make bold promises and let this be a place where we make sincere and bold promises. But after we say amen, you gotta go live it out. And God, we are gonna serve you for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health until death do us part. 
We gotta make those commitments and we gotta follow them up. This is the work of God that we're blessed to be a part of. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we don't have to make up these commitments. We don't have to dream these things up and say, well, God, I think I need to do this, but you lay it out clearly in your word. And all that you ask us to do is renew our commitment to you because you've already committed to us. There's no more commitment that you need to make to us as you laid down your life for us and your son Jesus. So you're just calling us back. Let us find our way back to you. Make those commitments that we need to make so many times that we know are right for you, we know that are right and best for us. And then after we say amen, live them out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.